Well, you know, last week we uh, we talked about. Let me, let me read a scripture before we get started here. Listen to this. This is from Colossians. It says, uh, giving thanks to the Father, which hath made us meet, or made us ready, made us prepared uh, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He had made us, he prepared us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who have delivered us from the power of darkness and had translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And last week, that's what we were looking at. We we're looking at the reality that before you come to know the Lord, you find yourself in this kingdom of darkness. After you come to know the Lord, you are no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but we are in the kingdom of light or the kingdom of his beloved son. And, but for most believers, although they find themselves in the kingdom of light, their hearts and their minds haven't comprehended or come to grips with that reality. And when we think of traditional Christian growth, the idea is that we are learning more and more about the Lord, more and more about what he's done for us, and eventually we'll be at, uh, at this place where we would like to be. Now, there is truth in that, because most people, that's where they find themselves. They find themselves somewhere along this con continuum between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, but not having, for some reason, not feeling the satisfaction of having found that place. So they are like, it seems like they're forever seeking, but never really coming to a, a complete knowledge of the truth. And the whole object of what I've been talking about last week and what we're going to continue this week is to illustrate for people, hopefully, that we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, where light and life exist. So that's what I wanted to kind of review a little bit about what we talked about and what these two creations look like. This new creation which which is we in which we find perfection that this is the kingdom of his beloved son the kingdom of heaven it, it's not based on this present world systems it's not based on human philosophy or governments or even religions but it's based on an endless life it's based on a life that we can possess that can produce in us everything that you could ever dream, hope, or imagine for. So it's it's in that life that we find these things. That is the, the kingdom of a perfect life. But we also see something else present in the world. And it's the it's this present creation. That creation is not perfect. I don't know, y'all I don't guess anybody thinks the world that we live in is like perfect. 
<laughs> you find anything slightly amiss? In, well, things are amiss. But it is not amiss because their politics is wrong. It's not amiss because they got too many religions and too many people believe different things about God. It do, it's not amiss because, uh, you know, wars exist or earthquakes or whatever. That's, that's not why it is amiss. There, there is confusion in the world because there is something amiss. But it is not what really is amiss. What is amiss is the fact that there is a darkness of death that exists in the world. That, that when God takes away the, the death that clouds human life as it is in the world today, when he takes that death out of the way, life appears, light appears. So this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to kind of take a look at uh, what perfection looks like. And you think to yourself, well, wait a minute. So you mean to tell me that somewhere it is written that perfection exists and it actually gives you a description of what this perfect life is? I'm going to tell you, most people, you know, I'm going to take us back just a little bit in, in the history of what I would say are the Pauline epistles, the Pauline letters. You know, right after Paul comes to know the Lord, I don't know what chronologically how this takes place, but I can tell you whoever put the scriptures together the way they did, did a pretty good job. I'm talking about the order of the scriptures. Because when you look at the book of Romans, what is the book of Romans? The book of Romans is this comprehensive picture of humanity on its own and what that looks like, what that life looks like. And it gradually brings you through the reality of Christ coming into the picture and how Christ coming into that picture translates us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So we, we see man as he is, and he brings us to what to in a very detailed oration of what Christ did to bring us into the kingdom of light. Then we have like first and second Corinthians, which were written to Gentile churches who had just come into the faith. And it it tells these churches how un, the understanding or knowing God does not come through human intellect or wisdom, because that's what they, they were used to. They were used to this philosopher and that philosopher, this religious teacher, that religious teacher. He said, no, that's not where wisdom and understanding comes from. It comes through the Spirit of God. He came to give us his spirit that we might know his thoughts. And then he, he talks to these churches about some kind of practical things, like there were things going on in the church that were not like, uh, that were kind of carryovers from their previous lives. <laughs> In, dark, in darkness, and he addresses some of those issues. Now, this wasn't some kind of thing about church discipline or what you do when somebody does something bad in the church, but he is 
he is explaining to people what the life looks like in first and second Corinthians. Then he gets into what is it? Uh, first, second Thessalonians. I'm not covering all the books, but uh, it talks about the coming of the Lord and what that thing looks like. I mean, just in, basically, okay? Then first and second Timothy, he talks to Timothy about the ministry, what, the, what ministry in the spirit actually looks like. So he, he's take, he takes us all the way through this thing, but it's interesting. The last few books of Paul's writings Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, the, these little short books or these treaties of uh, a detailed description of the kingdom of light, all three or four of those latter books. So he takes us from the very beginning to the very completion of what this life looked like and what it brought us to. So what we're going to do today, we're going to look at one of those books, and that's the book of Ephesians. And we're going to kind of read through it and talk about what does that kingdom look like? In other words, if we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, or death to life, what does that kingdom that we have been transposed over into, what does that actually look like? What does it mean to us that we are in the kingdom of light? So, with that in mind, as we read through uh, Ephesians, as we read through Ephesians, if I can bring the screen up here, We're going to see what that kingdom looks like. Now, we hear, you ever hear this? Somebody say, you know, you got to practice what you preach. You got to <laughs> practice what you preach. And uh, it's kind of interesting about that saying, because that's a saying that you hear in the world all the time. You know, you say you believe something, I want to see you do that thing. Well, in the kingdom of God, we don't actually practice what we preach. You know what? What it's in the kingdom of God, we believe what we preach. <laughs> this is just a reality. When you know the truth and you believe on that truth with every fiber of your being, something manifests. There's a life that manifests in what you believe. Because the righteous will live by what? So there's something that we believe on that we live by. So we believe by what we believe, what we believe in the Lord, what he means to us, what he's done for us. That belief produces life in us. So let's see what this new creation looks like. If you, it, I, I know everybody's got a Bible because y'all got a cell phone. <laughs> but if y'all want to go to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to kind of start going through these things. 
by the way, does anybody have any thoughts about what we've talked about so far? Yes. I may be unique in this, but, but sometimes I'll read something, even say it for 25 years, and not even know what I'm saying or reading, you know, not even understanding like what the words put together means. And so here's what I'm thinking you may be alluding to, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know. I don't know. So in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus said, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're feeling that he's not talking about like the new Jerusalem and the recreation of the earth. He's talking about the now in our lives. Am I misconstruing? No, not at all. He is talking about the now. Jesus himself said, listen, the kingdom of heaven is in you. <laughs> I don't know how much clearer that can be. Okay. That, that is where the kingdom of heaven uh, is, is seen. Now, will there be a new Jerusalem coming there from God out of heaven? Absolutely. I, I, no question about it. But the, the issue is for the believer, we don't have to wait for that new Jerusalem to come down from God out of heaven. Because his life, we are, we find ourselves, by the way, we're going to see this later on as we go through this thing. We are the temple of God in which God dwells by his spirit. So, no, we don't have to wait for the new Jerusalem, although we, I look forward to that. that I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a, a time, a culmination in human history when God's heaven is going to come down to earth and be with men, and he is going to reside with men. We're going to see him. We're going to live in glorified bodies, and we're going to be as perfect as he is in every possible way even our fleshly bodies, all creation is going to be uh, uh, wallowed up by his life. And that's going to be a good day. But in the meantime, we have a deposit within us, a spirit that came from him, Christ in you, who is the hope of glory both for today and for tomorrow. He is the our hope of glory. He is our assurance that what he promised, we possess. So what you're saying here is not like some future hope. This is something we possess. And that's why it's important for believers all over the world to kind of begin to come to grips with that we're not on a, on a pilgrimage. I had someone share with me one time that they believe life is like a pilgrimage and moving. And, and there is some reality that there's a lot of people who experience a pilgrimage and they're learning and they're growing to some degree. But I don't want to be on a pilgrimage. I do not want to be on a pilgrimage. Do you want to be on a pilgrimage? Because pilgrims, you know what they do? They wander about never finding what they're looking for. You can go to Jerusalem today on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When you get there, Jesus is not going to be there. <laughs> you're not going to see Jesus in Jerusalem. You're not going to see the crucifixion. You're not going to see a miracle that's going to help you believe. Because, yeah, Jerusalem really does exist. Now I can believe. No. I don't want to be a pilgrim. You understand? Pilgrim's progress? Throw that book out the window. We're not a pilgrim. 
we are sons and daughters of the living God. That's, right. That's who we are. Amen. And I have everything I need for life and godliness. So that's who you want to be. You want to be complete mm -hmm. and whole. So let's, let's look at what Paul says about this life that we possess. So this is uh, Ephesians chapter 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints that are in Ephesus and all the faithful in, in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So, you know, you begin reading the scriptures, and, you know, you, you, you're kind of reading through this book, and you say, he's just saying things, right? Well, it, a wise person will read something and think, what did that just say, right? What did that just say? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual <laughs> blessing in the heavenly places. So my question then would be, to me, if I was a smart, wise person, thinking through what I'm reading, what have we not been blessed with? What do I have to seek out in life to be blessed with? There's a lot of people that we know and love. We may have been one of them who thought, who think to ourselves, I need uh, money. I need, uh, I need a, like, when I become a preacher, I'm going to be happy. Or when I go to Jerusalem on this pilgrimage, I'm going to be happy. Or when, uh, I get the right job. I'm going to be happy. But what Paul just communicated to us is a, is a very simple truth. He says, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So what do we lack? Nothing. Are you blessed? Yes. Absolutely. Now, he's going to talk more about this. Listen. It's not just him saying that, that should give you peace. And, and Paul would be negligent if he says, he blessed you with every spiritual blessing, if he didn't tell you what those blessings are. Mm -hmm. And he's about to tell us. Just as he chose us, this is uh, verse 4, he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Number one. We're the, the, the possessors of every spiritual gift. Number two, he has made us holy and blameless before him in love. So what kind of question might that possibly bring up in your mind? When, when Paul says that we are holy and blameless before him in love, does that might not you go guys because you know better uh, <laughs> but people when you the idea that a human being is meant to be seen and understood in their own hearts and minds that they are holy and blameless before God in love what question that might bring up in Emma? someone say something 
what am I blameless of? Right. Well, what happens? What, that, that's a good question. So the question is, in the minds of most people who find themselves, you know, on that pilgrimage, trying to find the perfection, they're trying to find the perfection, is that my life, when I evaluate it, using my intellect and reasoning and, and looking at what I am doing and not doing, it does not appear perfect. It does not appear holy and blameless. You don't know what I've done. You think of all, the, all these thoughts. So people are going to have these thoughts when they hear these words. And so that when they hear these words, they say, well, I hear what it's saying, but I don't, I don't seem that way to me. The righteous will live by what? Faith. Faith. The righteous will live by faith. So when Paul tells us about a spirit, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he made us acceptable in the beloved. So when, when God, through the apostle Paul, says you're holy and blameless and have been made acceptable in the beloved, what does that say? We're acceptable in the beloved. So look, we, we can all get up, go to the Piccadilly. Wait a minute, they closed the Piccadilly. Huh? <laughs> How long ago has the Piccadilly been out of business? I guess probably 10 years. I'm a little behind in time, you know. But when we get up and go to lunch, it's meant for us in our hearts and minds, walking in the reality that we are holy and acceptable in the beloved, a part of his kingdom of life. Now, in him, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he had made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, according to the good pleasure of his will, which he purposed in himself. So, what also do we now know that we have? What? Somebody say it. The forgiveness of sins. Okay. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he had abounded toward us, or lavished upon us in all wisdom and understanding having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together all things in one, you know, in Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth, all in him. So, the whole idea of the knowing that we've been purified from sin is that we know that we can come to him and that in coming to him we will be his possession 
be all together in one of the same heart, mind, and, and spirit. You know, in other places, the Apostle Paul talks about the unity of the faith, okay? Now, the folks on a pilgrimage, okay, which I, I don't mean, I, I'm really kind of joking about that because I understand that there are people who are on a pilgrimage. But folks that are, are, are seeking after the perfection that Jesus wants to give them as a gift, those people who are seeking that perfection are like they're, they're working toward uh, seeing themselves as having been perfected. This has a great deal to do with the forgiveness of sins. In other words, I, I don't know what tradition you grew up in. I mean, religious tradition, you know, Catholic, Baptist, Pentecostal, whatever it is. Practically every religious tradition there is has this concept or an idea of what's, what forgiveness is and how it's attained. And I would say that in most evangel in the evangelical realm, it's, it's kind of like this. In the great by and by, now this is not necessarily true of every, you know, subculture of Christianity, but in most like evangelical Christianity that we see. In the great by and by, we've, we're, we're forgiven. But because we still sin, we still have to do something with that sin in order to be forgiven. We have to confess, confess our sin. We have to, uh, you know, chastise ourselves or, or make amends for the things that we do that are wrong. You know, there's all kinds of concepts of what we do with our sin. But according to what Paul is writing in here, he's saying this, that in him, we have a, as a possession, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and understanding. So the question then occurs, not according to the flesh, not according to the pilgrimage, but according to the truth. Are we forgiven? Do we exist in a forgiven state? Yes. yes. Yeah. That has nothing to do with your actions. This is what he has said of you. And the righteous will live by what? Faith. Faith. The righteous will live by faith. So when he says you're forgiven, and you say, well, I did, I told I was ugly to that person. What do I do with that? You know what you do? I, I'd suggest you apologize to him. That's what I would do. But that has nothing to do with forgiveness. That's right. So listen, we are forgiven. He had purged us from every sin. And the mind that understands that it has been forgiven, that the Lord shed his blood and purged us from all sin, that mind, when he offends someone or finds himself like doing something wrong in, in this world, 
That's all they do is like correct that action and move on in the full knowledge that you were completely forgiven and God is no longer counting your sins against you. That's what Paul wrote, wrote that in another place, I think the book of Romans, that he's no longer imputing sin to us any, in any form. So, in him, this is verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with his counsel, <clears throat> that we who were the first to trust in Christ might be or might exist for the praise of his glory. So listen to this. You know why we exist? You exist that when people look at you, they praise God because of you. That there's something inside of these guys, these men, women, and children, that when I see them, I see the Lord. I see life manifesting around. For in him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So what does that mean? So the Lord has given us his Holy Spirit to have given us life that because we know we have that spirit, that life, dwelling within us. It is like this thing within us that says, one day, not only did I redeem who you are in, you, in your body, but I'm also gonna come back and redeem your body and raise your body from the dead. And we're gonna, we're gonna live in glorified bodies forever with him in a glorified earth. So, Anybody got any thoughts? Some pretty good stuff, though. Mm -hmm. I, I, by the way, I hadn't heard one negative thing yet. <laughs> Have y'all heard? Well, I don't want that. <laughs> Ain't God still mad at me? What we're reading here should shut the mouths of a lot of people who are looking to the flesh to perfect their life. Listen. Everything we got from God is a gift Amen. to be received by faith. Yes. By his faith. That's right. Well, that's, that's, I think that's one of the keys that many people that I talk to. I have to be faithful. And I, I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll use Jill as our relationship as an example. Um, Jill can't work up faith about me. She sees me, she knows in her heart that I am faithful to be there whatever she needs, if she whatever it is. Um, I did not, she didn't have to work that up and every day get up and, okay, I gotta, I gotta get this right. You know, she knows in her heart. And I, I, I love that scripture says, the, the faithfulness of Jesus 
and a lot of people they have the same scripture they in jesus it's not in it's of jesus it's actually, it's actually both because she is the one that had faith in you but, but because it, it was elicited in her because of you see where I'm coming sure, from? Sure, sure. It, there's like a hand-in-hand -hand thing that takes place. You know, it, it kind of, I got another example of that. So Marie and I, okay? <laughs> Marie would never admit, Marie would never admit that I'm a good rock, okay? But listen, I am a extremely safe driver. I don't tailgate. I speak a little bit. Wait a but minute. It, it's, Do you that? draft? What's that? Do you draft? No, I, I don't draft. <laughs> I'm a very good safe drive. I really am. And when Marie and I go places, and that don't take much to make Marie go to sleep. She falls asleep really quick, okay? But she, we get in the car and she falls asleep immediately. You know why she falls asleep? Because she knows that I am faithful to her in my, my driving. And she, she, she knows that she doesn't have to be wide awake. What's he doing next? Because she has somebody that she can trust in. But let me give you an, another example about this faith. And this, this comes from the scriptures, okay? So Peter, as a matter of fact, I think I might have posted this recently. Peter blows my mind. Peter, the rock, okay? He saw Jesus' miracles, right? He heard Jesus' teaching. He saw Jesus walking on the water to him and went out to him. And Jesus rescued him out of the sea. These fantastic events that Peter saw. And when it came to his own skin, he says, he cursed and swore, I don't even know the man. Now I'm going to tell you that that is a perfect example of how far our faith will take us. We, we do not have the faith required to be saved. We can only see the life and the faithfulness of God towards us. That, and, and that faithfulness that we see, his ability to do everything that we are completely incapable of doing. We're incapable of saving ourselves into salvation through faith. We cannot do that. We see that faithfulness that had come to us, and we see that love that has come to us, and our hearts are drawn, drawn toward that, that faith, that faithfulness, and we believe unto salvation. That's why I say there is, there is faith. We are saved through our faith, unto his faith mm -hmm. that we might possess his faithfulness see what i'm saying it, it, it it's kind of like this reciprocal thing any thoughts on that now that's a fine one thing okay here we go now you know it's interesting that during you talk about peter's walk with jesus at that particular time, he had not yet been a partaker of the Spirit. That's right. And uh, I think sometimes we, we lose sight of what's happening there because we 
we have these predetermined ideas of what that even means. But at the resurrection of Jesus, all of a sudden the spirit of what was going on in that was revealed. And in that spirit, that's what caused the persuasion of the heart. Like right now, I could hear you saying a bunch of things and I could get hung up on a jot or a tittle, sure. but it's, but I have to back up and say, okay, what is the heart of what you're saying? Sure. Because that's what you're trying to express. Now you're using details to express that sure. and a detail might be confusing because some little detail might mean something totally different to you than what it means to me. Mm -hmm. But when I can back up and I can see the heart of it or the spirit behind what it is you're saying, then that has the power to penetrate into my heart. Well, it, it comes toward my heart. And then at that place, I'm either going to yield myself to that or I might just harden my heart. You know, as you say that, I was thinking about this earlier, you know, how the Lord did not call us. I hate to say this to a lot of people who spend a lot of money going to school for theology. But the Lord did not call us to be theologians. <laughs> he did not. Now, if someone goes to school and studies and is looking to God for understanding and he goes to school and gets a degree, whatever it is, more power to him. That's not, it's not like knocking somebody that has a theological degree. But the reality is he, God did not call anybody to be a theologian. That's not, we are theologians. We are those who are meant to be like receivers of truth and light and love. In other words, we we were meant to look to this God who is life and who is truth and who is goodness, hope, everything that you want in life, a desire in life. He is everything. And we looked at that God and he says, I want to give you everything. You believe on, on, on him. And he, he gives you that life. So, and, and that's where I was going to a little bit earlier when I was talking about un, the unity of the faith. When you're looking at the jots and tittles of theology, we can look at those things, especially things that are like questionable. No, there's no definitive answer to a particular thing or a particular issue. Those things can be discussed and argued and debated, right? And one person can leave believing one thing and another person can be leaving going another thing. No, is that unity? The answer is no, it's not unity. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll solve that. That is not unity. Unity is this, not this. But when we're theologians and we're looking at the jots and tittles, and it's okay. To look at the details. I'm not saying don't look at the details. What I'm trying to say though is there is an overarching truth that is found in God that when that overarching truth is coming to you, and this is really what you're talking about, when that overarching truth comes to you, you find yourself coming together with 
other people. Now, I, let's just go through just these few little things. That if everybody believed that we were the possessor of every spiritual blessing in heaven, in heaven, that we are holy and blameless before him in love, that we have been made acceptable in the beloved, that we are the possessors of forgiveness, have been purged from all sin, that we uh, are owners of the mystery of his will, that we might all be one in him, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing us our eternal life, our ex eternal existence, because we have that spirit. And knowing that we have assurance, riches, the riches of his inheritance, a power within us that is like the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And we are the fullness of God in him. When those things come to you, now, if somebody says, I don't believe that, well, they're not going to be in union with me. They're not going to be in union with me. But I'm going to tell you, anybody in his right mind that repeats it and says, I don't want that, I don't need that, that's not the truth. I just, it would actually blow my mind. I can hardly believe that anybody would read this and say, I don't want that. Right. So, unity of the faith comes through understanding the purity of the truth of that perfect life that he has given us. And that's what I share. I know uh, Greg shares that, Matt shares that, the people in this church understand that this, there's a life that can be had in which all the fullness of God dwells in, in, in bodily form. And that life is our life. And when you believe like that and share that truth with other people, not necessarily the jots and tittles of scripture, but that truth, you know what you're going to find? Unity. Unity. Yeah. You're going to find unity. That's why I'm focusing on this today. That's why it's called the unity of the faith. Of the faith. Because Absolutely. the faith produces the unity. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Back even in the old days, you know, it'd say, are you in the faith? Are you in the faith? That was actually a good question. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's not what they meant. No. But it's still a good statement. Faith, they mean, do you wear a dress down to your ankles? <laughs> or do, do you put your hair up in a bun? That's what they meant by are you in the faith? But but the question, are you in the faith, is a very good question. This is the faith, right? Here. Mm -hmm. This is the faith. Therefore, this is uh, uh, verse 15, if y'all following along. I Therefore, I also, after hearing of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, mentioning you in, our, in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you may know the hope of his calling, that is, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is his exceedingly great power for us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, or which he exerted in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, 
far above all principality, power, might, and dominion in every name that can be named, not only in this age, but in the age to, to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now just think about this. That was a mouthful. That was a mouthful. But he says, he prays that we might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know him. And that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we might know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So Paul is praying that our eyes and our hearts would be open to this, what we're looking at here. And, and the fact that we have an inheritance from God. Actually, God himself is our inheritance. Mm. That we may know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance and in saints and what his exceedingly great power toward us who believe. Listen, how would you like define the, the power? This is a, a question I'm asking y'all to think about. How would you define the power of God in our lives? How would you, how would you say that manifested? But before you answer the question, let me describe what that power actually is and, and how powerful it is. It's the same power that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in heavenly places. He's saying that power is the power that you possess. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. So how might that look? Dangerous. And if y'all don't have an idea, I got an idea, but go ahead, Bill. Um, I gotta say, this is one way, strong way, mm -hmm. that he won my heart uh, before, before Christ, how God felt towards us was a mystery. Yes. And actually, when I grew up, it was terrifying. Sure. <laughs> um, Jesus was God showing me his intentions towards me, towards us, his true self, his true love for me. That was incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Matter of fact, you answered the question. I, I, I maybe in different words than somebody else might say, but listen, the love of God that instituted his coming to earth, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, the whole thing, that love that was in the Father toward us is the manifestation of the power of God, us would, that we might possess that power ourselves. That's why, you know, when we talk about the faith and it's his faith toward us, Listen, that faith was not without effect. It produces faith in us. 
We also have faith. <laughs> it's not that, faith. well, it's just him, not me. That's theology. Listen, this ain't theology. His faith is now my faith. So I can't say that it's not my faith. So, so the reality is he's provided us everything we need for life and godliness. And it is through his divine power, like the power which he exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in heavenly places. That's power there, buddy. And what's so sweet about the whole thing is, is the reality that that is, is love. So that we can like, when we're not arguing theology, politics, and all this kind of stuff, and whether the war is going Putin's going to blow us all up. When we're not looking at all this stuff, and we're looking at the truth of the eternal life that he's given, and it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter. Listen, you're worried about politics? Listen to me. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. Do you understand that? Because if you're worried about that, you're going to find yourself on a pilgrimage looking for perf the perfection in politics, in, in uh, whatever, philosophy, that you're not going to find. You're never going to find the answer on a pilgrimage. Where you're going to find the answer is having reached the end. Yep. That power that he's given us, like the mighty power, which he exerted in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. And listen, listen to this cool part. And he put all things under his feet, right? Listen to this description, which will blow your minds. And gave him to be head over all things for the church, which is his body. Now listen to how he describes his body. You know who his body is? Us. It's us. Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Now I got to tell you, that would kind of blow your mind. But did you ever consider yourself the fullness of him who fills everything in every way? That's, who, that's what my life is. That's what your life is. And you know what? You believe that thing, you're going to come to unity with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. But when you, well, I think Jesus is coming back uh, in 2023 because when you add 2013 and subtract 36, I'm sure he's coming back. And this guy over here says, that sounds like a bunch of poppycock. That's not unity. That's theology. It's not unity. Need a blood moon. What's that? We need a blood moon. That's right. It's a blood moon. It's a blood moon. Listen. You can believe the truth. Now, you know what? I, I, I'm going to tell you how I personally treat uh, things that you find in the scriptures that are debatable, questionable, interesting, but there's like no way on God's green earth. For 2,000 years, they've been trying to figure out fully the book of revelations nobody ever will but one day that whole book is going to be fulfilled it's going to be fulfilled you, <laughs> this is what i do with those types of things i read them and believe them 
I try not to read and interpret them. I read them and I believe what they're saying. And I trust that God is capable of producing understanding in me about these things. But what I will, will not do is I will not make interpretations of things that I do not really know about. And why is that? Because it is a distraction from the faith. I can read about it and listen. John wrote of the book of Revelation, blessed is he who reads these words and keeps them and takes them into his heart. Blessed is the man that does that. So I'm not saying don't read the book of Revelation because you can't understand it. I'm absolutely not saying that. But the only thing worthy of preaching is the faith that brings unity. The truth that we know is true that tends to bring unity among people. And that's what we're looking at today. But And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. That's pretty neat. And he, this is chapter two, and he made alive, and I'm sorry, and you, he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience or unbelief, among whom also you once conducted our sweet in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as the others. So what Paul is saying here is God translated us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He made us alive for how long? He's given us what? Eternal. The eternal life. So if you have been made alive, we have eternal life. We will, we, we're going to live forever. That's why Jesus would tell the people even during his day, he who believes in me, even though he's dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. In which you once walked. Okay, we, I, got, I read that now. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, where are we today? I mean, physically, we're on this earth walking around. But where are we really? I mean, where is he? He is in us. We are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace 
in his kindness expressed to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, least any more man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That was another little mouthful. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, what? That what? Faith, which is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So God presents something to us, a truth, a reality that he wants to give us eternal life. We see that love. We see what he has done for us at the cross. We believe on that love, and it comes to us, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, least anyone should boast before God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Man, whose workmanship do you want to be? Mm. I got to tell you something. I, I know some people who are like good artists and stuff like that, and they can present a, a really pretty picture. And when you consider like the human mind and the creativity that exists there, that came to us from God. It may not be perfect, but there is beauty to be seen in a lot of artwork that, that you can see in this world. But can you imagine being the handiwork or the workmanship of God himself? So here, this is where the question comes in. Who's, I just, you know, when for the people that are on a pilgrimage, working their way to what God already has given them, okay? The people on a pilgrimage trying to perfect their lives, trying to fashion their lives. Whose workmanship is that? Yeah. It's their workmanship. It is them trying to find perfection in the way. Okay, you know, on the pilgrimage. But listen, when we are his workmanship, does that workmanship lack anything? Is it beautiful? Yeah. Is it good? Yes. Absolutely. And that's who you are. You are the workmanship of God. Yes. Notice and remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the by those who call themselves the circumcision. But that made by the flesh of hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, Christ, who was once far away, at least in our own hearts, in our in our own minds, uh, but now Christ, who is far, was far away, has been brought near by the blood of Christ. So. We were far away. Now where are we at? We're near. We're near. <coughs> For he himself is our peace, who hath made 
boat one, when he said boat, whose boat he's talking about? Jew and Gentile. The Jews and the Gentiles. He has made us one. You remember we were talking about unity? And how could he make us one? Through the knowledge of the truth. Through the knowledge of the gift of God. So, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Now listen. Do you all realize that the Jewish nation has been persecuted for a very long time? They were persecuted by many different nations, including, you would know about Hitler and the Holocaust and all that. I have often wondered, that this is just this, I, I don't know, it's, it, these people from the, from the Far East, which was a little bit of a blending of races and stuff like that, but there was like nothing in their appearance to my knowledge, that set them apart. Like, look at those ugly people over there. <laughs> oh, look, look at those, they too pretty or whatever. There was nothing physically that set these people apart from anyone else. And I wondered, why do people hate the Jews? Have y'all ever thought of that? Why, why, what is that separation that exists between the Jew and the Gentile? I can tell you, this is my understanding in, in this regard. And I, when I say it's my understanding, I say it because that's what I'm reading right here. It says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man out of the two, and thus making peace. The Jewish people... <clears throat> They thought they were God's special people. We received the law of Moses and they turned it into this big religion and they had a form of righteousness, but not according to knowledge. But it was their <coughs> socio-economic <coughs> religious systems that actually had a form of godliness to it. That when the world saw that, they hated this people. Listen, Adolf Hitler hated the Jews because he thought they were, uh, he believed, they thought they were better than him. That's why he did because, because they were the holders and the keepers of the law. But when the, when the law was, how does he say, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one man. When he removed the law out of the way and said, listen, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your understanding of right and wrong, good and evil, which, by the way, the Gentiles already had. The whole world had bitten into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had their own laws. They may not have had the law of Moses, Okay, but they had other laws that they thought they could climb up to God and attain to God to. Okay, 
it wasn't just the Jews that had law. The whole world had law. But when he said, that is not the way unto life, that is not the way unto righteousness, I am. I will give you my life. When he removed the law, which contained ordinances, so as to create in himself one man, he made the two one. And how did he do that? He says, and he might, that he might reconcile both of them in one body through the cross by putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and to those who were near, to the Jew and the Gentile. For through him, we have access by one spirit to the Father. Now I got to tell you, ain't nothing better than that. Listen, he gave me his spirit, he gave me his light, and he has given me all the fullness of God as a gift to be believed on, whereby we find ourselves one with one another complete. Let me tell you something, unity can be found in a church. Just believe that. <laughs> Listen, you can't argue. Listen, you can argue and remain at enmity. I'm not saying you can't argue. But you'd have to be a fool to know that God has given us everything, every spiritual blessing. He has made us holy and blameless before him in love. He's accepted us into the blood. He has purged us from all sin. He he made known to us the mystery of his will that we all come to him and be one in him. He sealed us unto eternal life uh, by the Spirit. We know God. We have his assurance. The riches of his inheritance, his mighty power is within us. And we are the fullness of God in him. We've been made alive forever, seated in the heavenly realms. We have saved apart from ourselves of but according to his faith, we are his workmanship. Why would somebody look at such a thing and say, I ain't interested in that? Now, guess what? You can do that. But anyone who is of the faith can easily believe in that. I don't care. I don't care whether you're a Baptist, a Catholic, or I don't care what, what, what label you might put on a human being. If somebody is of the truth, they will hear that truth and become one with you. That's where unity comes from. Amen. It's not from theology and everybody agreeing on all the jots and tittles of scripture. It all, it comes down to this. Anyway, we could go further, but I'm not. We, I mean, that's, that's part of the book of Ephesians. It is, it's rich and it goes well beyond there. Anybody have any thoughts or questions? Yes, sir. One thing that you said that, that really touched my heart, and I really hope it grows up in me, and I'm going to put in three sentences that you said, and they may be out of context, but together it makes sense to me. It doesn't matter what happens here. We are not on a pilgrimage. People on a pilgrimage are trying to perfect their lives 
by their own efforts. And what I was reminded of is the book in the 1980s, which by now surely is out of print, uh, by on Heinz Field, High Places, whatever it was. And this person was on a pilgrimage but clearly their life was tormented and tortured and grotesque. Uh, and it really touched my heart as far as just what you're saying. No, no, that's not it at all. So thank you. Well, you know, I, I try to choose my words carefully. And sometimes I, I can, I'm capable of stumbling and I can tell you that the idea that pilgrimage came from a conversation I had with somebody close to me, you know, who I shared a similar thing to, that I don't believe it's a pilgrimage. But it's important for me to communicate here that I understand that a lot of people are actually on a pilgrimage in, in their hearts and their minds. They may not know the Lord, or they may be seeking to understand, seeking to come to grips with the very things that I'm, I'm teaching. So there is a pilgrimage that people are on. The whole purpose, I hope the spirit of this is coming, coming through, is that you get up out of the pilgrimage and get into the promised land. That's it. You understand what I'm saying? It, the idea is to get up out of the pilgrimage, quit wandering around in the desert for 40 years or, or 80 years or whatever, and get into the promised land. Because everything that's in the promised land is yours. Now, I got one question. You know, when you think about spiritual things, sin and death and, you know, uh, relationships that struggle, Life is complicated. It, it People will say, I hear what you're saying, but you don't understand. My wife is getting ready to leave me. Or, or my kid did this, or my kid did that. There's things that happen that are traumatic and difficult in life, okay? I hear what you're saying here, but what about all these other things that I am experiencing in life that I have to deal with? So... Someone can hear this and consider what they're experiencing physically in this life and say, how do I relate these, these two things, okay? Well, the Apostle Paul kind of put it this way. He says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, power, and of love, and of a sound mind. So when you get yourself out of the pilgrimage and get into the promised land and you come to assimilate this in your hearts and your minds and you come to realize that you got everything you need for life and confidence and that your life has been made perfect. Your life is perfect and complete. Why? Not because Maurice said it. Because he said it. But by one sacrifice, he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. When you get yourself out of the pilgrimage and get into the promised land as quick as you can, all of a sudden, he gives you a sound mind, a spirit that is not a fear, so that the screwed up stuff you're faced with in life, it, 
you're faced with in life, you can begin to deal with in a spirit that is not of fear, that is of a sound mind, and that is of love. And when you begin to deal with those things like that, all of a sudden, you find life beginning to work better. And even if life can't be fixed, which it can't be fixed, at least your interpretation of what's going on and your understanding and your ability to deal with those things improves. Life gets better. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your truth, for your grace, for uh, the fact that you truly have provided for us completely. You were your your work through your the cross and your death and your resurrection, your ascension to glory, your giving of the Spirit, your giving us eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. These things were not in any way incomplete or left for us to work out. We do not participate in our own redemption. You are the redeemer. You are the giver of life. And Lord, we uh, I just pray that you know the things that we've shared here will uh, open up some people's hearts and their minds to the fact that they can get up out of the pilgrimage and get home to where they belong. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Very good.